0: started a graduate degree in statistics at the University of California, Berkeley. And at the beginning of one of the class sessions, the professor scribbled out two famously unsolvable problems on the blackboard. But here's a problem. George happened to be late that day, late to class, missing the disclaimer that the problems were unsolvable. And so not knowing that, he quickly copied down the problems and accepted them as his homework assignment and went home with them. And while well, the homework took a little bit longer than he anticipated, but he worked diligently on it enough that he turned uh, at least the work that he had accomplished on these problems, he, he turned them in. Well, a few weeks passed uh, until one day, George heard somebody pounding on his apartment door. He went to the apartment door and there standing was his professor. And the professor had a huge smile on his face The professor replied, uh, or again, Danzig asked the professor, like, what in the world are you you doing here? Why are you pounding on my door? What do you need? And the professor replied that he had, in fact, solved two of statistics previously known as unsolvable problems. Well, George Danzig went on, finished his doctorate in 1946, uh, went on to work at the Department of Defense. In 1966, he took a faculty position at Stanford University in computer science. In 1975, he won the National Medal of Science. Some of his algorithms uh, still influence the way airlines schedule their fleets, the way shipping companies deploy trucks, and the way financial companies do revenue projections. His legacy is felt far and wide to this day, and I would suggest that it all started the day he walked into a stats class at Cal Berkeley, Saw a couple of problems like these on the board and got to work, Danzig was credited later on as saying, thankfully, no one ever told me they were unsolvable, because if they did, I probably would have never tried to solve them. This morning, I want to talk to you about the unsolvable problems that you might be facing today. Uh, it could be a prayer that you have been praying over and over again, a prayer yet unanswered um, or answered. Uh, it, it could be a, a healing in your life that you've been asking God for, a, a healing maybe you've been asking uh, for a child or for a friend and not yet experienced. I mean, maybe it's a marriage that you've been hoping would get better, but it only seems to be getting worse. Uh, maybe it's a, a kid in your home that's making some terrible decisions right now it could be money problems that aren't going away or an ongoing struggle with something like loneliness anxiety worry or depression like what what is it for you when you just get thinking about your world right now your life what is what is the impossibility what's the unsolvable problem in your life this morning i want to talk about those problems that haunt us the problems that seem to have no solution. More importantly, I want to talk to you about the all-sufficient power of Jesus Christ that is available to every person here today. Jesus said that every one of us, that we're going to face problems in this world. We're going to go through difficult times. And, and so this broken world means that we're going to come up against difficult circumstances that are going to come into our lives. But the, but the story that we're going to look at today is going to show us that no matter what we face, like no matter The the problem or the problems before you today that Jesus can, uh, that Jesus is able, and that there is nothing too great, there is nothing too complicated for him. And so today's message is about faith. Today's message is about trusting the Lord, not giving up, and believing Jesus for everything that we need in this world. Turn in your Bibles uh, to John chapter 6. All right, it's the fourth book of the New Testament, John chapter 6. We're going to look at a famous unsolvable statistical problem from the days of Jesus, all right? And if you've been around church, if you've been around the Bible, you may know this one. It's the story of 5,000 men, all right? But the text says 5,000 men, and so we're led to assume that there's a number of women, a number of children. Some scholars suggest as much as 20,000 people, and they're all hungry, But this is really where the problem begins to emerge because Jesus and his disciples have five loaves of bread and they have two fish. Interestingly, though, it's not the only problem in our story today. To begin, Jesus' public ministry was growing, all right? At this point in his ministry, was growing in popularity. There were crowds following Jesus and his disciples everywhere they went. For those reasons, Jesus and his disciples, they couldn't get a break. There's no time to rest. I mean, everywhere they went, they encountered a crowd. Add to it, they had recently learned of the execution of Jesus' cousin and their close friend and really former rabbi for many of them, the guy that we know as John the Baptist, all said they're tired, they're beat up, they're ready to unwind. Here's how John opens John chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. He writes this, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, all right, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias, And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. We've been following Jesus back and forth around Israel, really between two different locations, Jerusalem in the center of the country, or on the bottom part of this map, and then the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is going to spend so much of his time teaching and training his disciples and ministering to the crowd. In John chapter 6, they're back here at the Sea of Galilee, and here's kind of a close-up of that particular region, John talks about the fact that Jesus and his disciples had been ministering around Capernaum, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee there. In verse one, John says that Jesus and his disciples got in a boat and they're going to make a journey across the far shore of the Sea of Galilee to a place that's known today as the Golan Heights. And it was there that Jesus and his disciples were hoping to get some rest. But that's when another problem emerges because according to John, the crowd that had seen and uh, been ministered in Capernaum watched them. And so they followed them around the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Eventually, Jesus and his disciples, they get out of their boats. They arrive at their little vacation spot where they're met by a surprise of their own. Look at how John writes it. Skip over to verse 5. The first part there, it says, when Jesus looked up, He saw a great crowd coming toward them. I can only imagine what was going through the disciples' minds in this moment. They're tired, all right? They're ready to unwind, all right? Maybe ready to do a little binge-watching of the Chosen series with Jesus, you know, kind of kick back and watch it together. They're ready for a break, and now all of these uninvited guests, what's Jesus thinking? Well, John doesn't tell us, but Mark does, the gospel writer Mark. Look at what Mark records about Jesus' response In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, he writes, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, what did Jesus do? It says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. The word compassion here means that Jesus saw and felt the need of every person in the crowd. Can I tell you about something, tell you something about Jesus and about your life? No matter who it is, who you are, Jesus sees you. He knows you. Uh, He sees your pain. Jesus understands your grief, your, your anxiety. He's more than aware of the greatest problem that you have before you today. And he's heard every prayer. He's heard every cry and he cares. Jesus has compassion for you, and Jesus felt compassion for the crowds. And so as Mark writes, he began teaching many things, and we assume that this went on for most of the day, which is going to lead to yet another problem. And Jesus summed up this additional problem, in a question to the disciples specifically directed at Philip. Back to verse five, all right? Jesus saw this great crowd coming toward them. He turned to one of his disciples, Philip, and asked, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? See, Jesus understood the problem, the dilemma they were facing. These people had been there all day, and they're getting hungry, and so Jesus turns to Philip, who's from Bethsaida, by the way, a village that's close by, and so no doubt Philip knows where the closest Panera is, all right, or where they can get some bread, and so he asked Philip, where indeed can we get bread for these people? Why is Jesus making it his responsibility to feed thousands of people? Well, John gives us a clue as to what Jesus is up to in the next verse. Verse 6 says, he asked, Jesus asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. See, Jesus knew what he was about to do, but he asked the question in order to test the faith of Philip and really the disciples for that matter. Here's something you may or may not realize. By this time in John 6, Jesus and his disciples have now already spent about two to two and a half years together. And so that means they knew something of each other. Jesus knew something about them. And I think it's fair to say that Jesus wants to use this problem to test them to really measure how far they've come and they've grown in their faith. And do you know what? In the same way that Jesus tested his disciples, he allows you and I to get tested too. We're going to go through tests. We, uh, he, he allows us to be tested uh, and he wants to use them for good things in our lives. You know, when we think of tests, we tend to think of exams, driving exams, an exam at school, a, a final, blanks that need to be filled in. If you're old enough, you remember this message. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system, right? This is only a test. Jesus doesn't send tests into your lives to hurt you or to complicate things for you, but he intends to bring good things from them. Tom Galladay uh, kind of suggests this, the, the benefit of these tests. Like like Jesus, uh, he, he says three things, that Jesus sends tests in our lives to stretch our faith, all right? He uses these tests to stretch our faith. We may see the impossible, but if we'll let him, we get a front row seat, all right, to, to watch God do something amazing in and around our lives, and that's going to stretch your faith. A, a second thing is he says that he will, God will, that Jesus will put us into impossible situations to strengthen our eternal hope. You know, when I, when I face something difficult in this world, is this true of you? When I face something difficult in this world, and I realize, if I remember that God has something greater planned, all right, on the other side of all of this, my, de, my desire from heaven, well, for heaven, that's going to strengthen our hope for eternity. A third thing is that life's test are just one more opportunity for Jesus to demonstrate His great love and compassion for us. God will test you, all right. He, he tests me. He's going to test us. Honestly, that doesn't always sit right with me, all right. Because there, there are times that you know you just go like who likes to be tested, all right. Who needs a test? Why Why do we have to go through hard times with you? He can't see the whole picture. All we can do is is trust and believe that he knows what he's up to, he knows what he's doing, and that he loves us, and he loves us in ways that we can't fully imagine. For the disciples, Jesus wanted to get a pulse on how their faith was coming along. What were they learning about themselves? Why, how, how were they learning to trust Jesus even more? Their response to Jesus reminds me a little bit of myself. See if you can find yourself in the following uh, response and interaction. Verse 7, John writes, That Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to just have a bite. It's interesting that Philip didn't really answer Jesus' question. All he offered was a statistic, basically. It it would take more than a half year's wages, uh, 200 denarii in some translations. Even with that, Philip says, everyone maybe gets one bite. Philip Philip revealed his problem. His problem was that he was a realist. All right, his problem was that he measured everything with, with a calculator. He decided everything by a calculator. Any, any of you have problems like that when it comes to your faith? All right, in, in your life, you know, like, you know, our is, I've only got this much money. All right. What, what can I do about it? All right, I, I don't have that degree. You know, I, I'm not capable of doing those things. Sure, I've got these gifts, but have you seen my weaknesses? There's only so much time left. There's only so much I can do. Thankfully, aren't you thankful for this? Aren't you thankful that David saw God and not just a giant? Aren't you thankful that that Gideon saw his Savior and not just the size of his army? Mary didn't crumble at the revelation of an unplanned, impossible pregnancy. She took the angel at his word, and she trusted God, and she put her faith in God. And even Jesus, We, we see his struggles in a place like the Garden of Gethsemane, But even in his pain and even in his fear, he still responded in faith, and he trusted the Lord. Philip questioned, but he's not the only one either, because uh, another disciple, Andrew, well, he's got a problem too. Look at verse 8. It says, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, hey, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? At first glance, Andrew seems to give us a little bit of hope, like finally someone with faith. I mean, at least he's been out working the crowd, trying to take some kid's lunch, you know. I mean, checking bags to check inventory to see how much food there is to go around. Unfortunately, he's not really much different than Philip because he also looked at the situation. And concluded that there is no way to solve this problem. And while Andrew and Philip really kind of get the bad rap here as the only ones to respond, the point is that it's safe to assume that this was the attitude of all the disciples. There's no way. We've got this problem. There's no solution. Just send the people on their way and let them figure out what they're going to have for dinner. The disciples couldn't see a way through. You know, again, send the people on their way. Let them take care of their own needs. Life will do that to you, won't it? When the struggle becomes so great, and after days and days and months and months, maybe years of asking, like you live in the pain and the frustration of an unsolvable, gut-wrenching problem long enough. Like it's tempting to look for a quick way out because if the marriage is too hard, it's easy to say, you know, I mean, maybe it's just better if we get out of You know, if I can't make the pain go away, like the temptation, the opportunity there to medicate is so great. Like I if I pray and I pray and I get no response, I mean it's so easy to want to give up on God or or when we conclude that, you know what, no one will notice, no one really likes me anyways, and so I'll just isolate myself from others. Like things can get so bad that you can lose the will to keep going. You can lose the will to live. We've all gone through things. And we all want out. The disciples' problem, you want to know what the disciples' problem is? They grossly underestimated the power of Jesus. And to think, this Jesus that changed water to wine, this Jesus that they watched heal a nobleman's son, this Jesus who put strength back in the lame man's legs, I mean, he's right there in front of them. Right? And yet all they could see was 20,000 people, five loaves of bread, two fish. Why couldn't they see him? Why did they miss what was right before their eyes? What's the problem? Well, their problem so often is, is my problem. And again, likely yours too, that we grossly underestimate the power of God, the power of Jesus that's available in our lives. I've got this little book on my shelf. My dad gave it to me a long time ago. I picked it up this past week. It's a, a book called Your God is Too Small uh, by a guy by the name of J.B. Phillips. And in there he talks about weak faith and how so many of us, we have this faulty view of God. That The, the trouble with many of us today is that we're unwilling, we're afraid to believe in a God who is big enough all right, to deal with all of our needs. And, and he says in there, Philip says that, yes, life's experiences can stretch us and, and test us and grow our faith, but sadly, more often than not, what happens is that even through the trials, our faith in God remains static. It's not growing. What's the solution? He says, dare to see God for who he really is. Dare to look to his word and believe the truth that is before you. What's the best way to know God, all right, to better understand God, he says, to see God for who he really is. And again, that's to look at Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Look to Jesus. See Jesus, see God. And as John says, Jesus, he is the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When you see Jesus, you are getting a picture of what God is really like. And I just want to say, that's why we're studying John together. That's why we're taking most of this year to work through the book of John. That's why we're in this growth series because we believe that there is no better way to know God. Than to get to know jesus through his word and who he is and what he's like and what's he capable of what's john's goal again with this gospel kind of his key thesis statement is at the very end of the chapter john chapter 20 verse 31 where john writes but these are written that you may believe that jesus is the messiah the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name the implication is the more you study jesus the more you spend time in the word of god your faith grows and grows and grows and in that process maybe God isn't so much as small but he gets bigger and bigger and greater for each of us I don't know where you are in your life today I don't know where you are in your faith right now but if you want to grow in your faith you need to grow closer to God and the best way to do that is to spend time in his word I just want to remind you read John with us all right, there, there's a, a handout back at the Info Hub. You can find one on the website and follow along with our reading plan. Uh, get here on Sundays as we continue working through the book of John. Find your way into a connection group. We'd be happy to help you with that. Let's keep growing in our faith together because this encounter between Jesus, the disciples, and the crowd is not here by accident. Jesus is gonna use this event to grow the disciples' faith, and he wants to do the same for you and me with this story as we spend time in his world. A word. Again, all the disciples disciples could see it was a problem. The solution is going to emerge in a miraculous display of Jesus' power. Kent Hughes points out that the feeding of the 5,000 plus another 15,000 or so was the most public of all of Jesus' miracles. In fact, it's the only one recorded at all four of the Gospels. Look at what happens next, verse 10. Jesus said to them, have the people sit down There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down, and again, the parentheses of about 5,000 men were there. It must have taken a while to probably get everyone's attention here on this seashore, all right, to get everyone seated. What in the world's going through the disciples' minds? Like We can only assume that Jesus has their attention now, all right, as their anticipation was growing. But finally, Jesus got everyone seated, and what he does next is pretty outstanding. It's found in two little words. Verse 11, then Jesus took the loaves, and what did he do? He gave thanks. Can you imagine thanking God for the food when at this point there's no evidence that there's even enough? As far as we can see, Jesus has five loaves of bread in front of him and two fish. Talk about faith. Verse 11, again, Jesus gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. Mark tells us a little bit more, saying that Jesus said a blessing, he broke the loaves, and then he distributed the food to the disciples who were going to pass it out to others. The implication is that the loaves just multiplied. Uh, The fish didn't run out. The disciples kept handing out food and there was always enough, and not just a little snack time either for everyone, because verses 12 and 13, John records, when they all had enough to eat, all right? Again, not just a snack, they've all got plenty to eat. Jesus said to his disciples, now gather the pieces that are left over. all right? They've even got leftovers. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten? Get this. There's so much food left over that even the disciples get a basket of bread to take home for the next day. Interesting. One thing to point out here: barley loaves were known as poor man's food, uh, the cheapest of all the breads. In fact, the Mishnah, which is kind of like a commentary on the Jewish scriptures, talks about how barley bread was good for animals. It was good for beasts. Why would Jesus use barley bread? I think part of the reason was wanting his disciples to see that he can use anything. He can use whatever he chooses. He can use anyone. He can use a desperate prayer. He can use even a little bit of faith. And he can use a story like this. God can use a story, an account like this out of John chapter 6 to give us faith to believe. Again, Jesus said, he told us that everyone's going to face problems. We're all going to go through hardships and troubles in our lives. This broken world means that difficult circumstances are going to come before us. But this story of Jesus here, it's here to remind us that no matter what we face, no matter what you go through, no matter the problems before you today, he can and he is able and there's nothing too big and there's nothing too complicated for him i got to tell you, I've been trying to personalize some of what I'm sharing with you today just in preparation for today, and I don't want to draw any unnecessary attention to me and certainly my circumstances because some of you are going through things that are far greater than I am right now, but I'll just be honest and say these last few weeks have been hard. Uh, they've been challenging for me, and there are different things that are contributing to it the winter that won 't go away first of all, uh, wrapping up greater you know I mean the last two years have been fun, exhilarating, challenging, exhausting our Our staff ha- has been really working hard these last weeks and are busy and, and tired. Add to it the war in Ukraine, fears about the economy, thoughts about where the world is heading i 'll just be honest and say it gets, it's, it's heavy. And I know some of you can relate with me. And sometimes I think about it too much. I dwell on it too much. And, and so I've been tired and I struggle with worry. I think I've shared that with you before. I've had moments where I've felt really discouraged. Call it my problem, all right, if you would. And I, and I feel like at times that it's all on me to figure it out. Just like Philip. Just like Andrew. I, I grossly underestimate the power an availability of jesus in my life what about you what is it for you how many of you would say you know what i feel a little trapped today i feel overwhelmed by a life and what have you decided is too big for god it's too great for him if, you, if you're like me there are times when you probably feel like you know what my my prayers feel weak i I lose hope, we lose hope, we lack faith, we get frustrated with God. We're like, God, I know you sent your son Jesus to die for me and that I've got the hope of heaven in front of me one day, but there's no way you understand my problem right now. You know way, there's no way you understand what I'm facing. If you only realize the bind that I was in, if you only knew what I was feeling, if you only knew that I only have so much left to give. I've done the math. I've read WebMD. You know, I've exhausted every option for this problem. There is no solution. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. And if so, my prayer for you is that you might find yourself standing close to Jesus along this seashore and hear him say, I want to help you. God can help you. It's true. It's who he is. He is kind. He is a compassionate, gracious God. As Jesus saw these people as people without a shepherd, he sees us the same way too. He knows He's here, and he is able to help you, and he wants to help you. Isaiah said it like this of God in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. He says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him he wants to help he wants to be gracious to you he is ready to show you compassion call out to him wait on him and know this no matter what it is in your life no matter how complicated or great it may appear to be he wants to help and get this too he is big enough to help with whatever it may be he's big enough What's the problem in Galilee? 20,000 people, five loaves of bread, two fish. Mark Batterson says, how in the world do you feed a crowd like that with that? It's an unsolvable problem because we assume that five plus two equals seven, but it doesn't. Not in God's kingdom. In John chapter 6, five plus two equals 20,000, remainder 12. Genesis, no matter the problem you face, add Jesus to the equation. There's nothing he can't do. There's nothing that can stop him. There is nothing too big for him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for words like these. But I know it's easy to sit there at times and think that's 2,000 years ago. Jesus was right there. He's right there with them how can he possibly do that for me? Father, would you give us faith to believe in Jesus today for who he is, what you sent him to do, and his availability to each of us today. Father, as Jesus looked out on that crowd and had compassion for every one of them, help us to see that you can do that. You are doing that even today. And as Jesus began multiplying and blessing, would you do that? Would you begin that? Would you continue that? Would you restart that in our lives here today? Give us the faith to believe that Jesus is able good that you want to help, that you are big enough to help. God, we trust you. We put our faith in you here in this place this morning, and we worship you, and we give you thanks in advance, even as Jesus gave thanks in advance for the bread. We give you thanks for what you're going to some that may mean just getting us through today. And then we'll start over again tomorrow. But Lord, we trust you. Thank you for the life and hope that we have in you and your son, Jesus.